BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Dr. Sarah Kapnick is the newly appointed chief scientist at NOAA and only the third woman in NOAA's history to be appointed to this role. She brings not only a background in climate science, but extensive knowledge in economics as well. Dr. Katnick joins us today to discuss her journey to become chief scientist at NOAA, her new role, and what the extended forecast for NOAA is. Dr. Katnick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. You know, I've got to ask the question that I ask every Weather Geeks guest. I mean, it's, it's just sort of a rite of passage now on the show. How'd you become a Weather Geek or are you one? I think I would be more of a climate geek. So I guess I'm a close sister to weather geeks. Um, I got interested in the field because I had grown up in the Midwest where there was really strong weather, particularly snowstorms, which I love snow, um, and was really just fascinated with it and didn't really know that one could have a career in the space until um, I was in college. And so then it just really grew from there. You know, it's interesting because we've certainly had our share of climate geeks on. We've had AI geeks, machine learning geeks. So we, we take all geeks under the umbrella here at Weather Geeks. Uh, let me give you a little bit of Sarah's background, just so you know a little bit about her. Uh, she has a Ph.D. in atmospheric and ocean sciences from UCLA, uh, also a certificate in, uh, I guess, the sustainability, uh, uh, leaders in sustainability from the Institute of the Environment Sustainability. She did an is it an AB in mathematics from Princeton University? And prior to joining NOAA as chief scientist, she was senior climate scientist and sustainability strategist, managing director at AWM JP Morgan Chase and Company. Uh, so you can clearly see she has a really interesting background in terms of NOAA. Now, I've served on various NOAA advisory committees, including the Science Advisory Board for NOAA in the past. Uh, it's really interesting to see someone that has this type of background. So for the Weather Geeks listeners, uh, it makes sense to me why someone with your background is in this role. But before we get to that, can you give the Weather Geeks listeners a little 101 on what the chief scientist at NOAA does? Yeah, so the specific uh, duties of the chief scientist is being responsible for advancing the agency's science, research and technology priorities as well as ensuring scientific integrity throughout the organization. The way that I say that simply is like, we give you the facts and only the facts, and then you can do with that as a decision maker, whatever you need to do from that information. But our goal is to make sure that we're getting that data, those products, those services, we're getting them out there so people can use them. And, and Noah, many of you listening know this, but many of you listening to the podcast may not realize, but NOAA as an agency is situated within the Department of Commerce. And uh, there are certainly reasons historically why that's the case. I want to kind of sort of trace your, you gave us a little bit of a sort of insight into your career path, but I mentioned that you were most recently at uh, JP Morgan Chase. Tell us about you know, how similar or different these roles are and perhaps how they're related. Yeah, my 
my role, you, you gave my very long title that I had in my last role, but in a way it was like a chief scientist role. My job was to help people understand climate and climate science and weather and weather extremes, understand how they could use that information to be able to make investment decisions or how businesses could use it. And it was really about demystifying the science of what we have and how it's going to affect everyone, how it will affect every single sector of the economy, how it will touch every corner of the world. Um, and it was it was a job that uh, they needed a scientist to help help them understand, help their client, help everyone understand these issues. And coming into the chief scientist role in NOAA, very similar. My job is to make sure that we have the science developing for where it needs to develop in the future. But then also with all the information and data work that we have today, that people are also getting access to that and are using it. Um, and sitting inside Department of Commerce makes so much sense to me with how weather and climate touches every single sector, all parts of the economy, all parts of the United States and all parts of the world. You know, this just came to mind. Do you identify as a climatologist or an economist or a little of both? Or are we just sort of beyond titles at this point? <laughs> I would say I, I am a climate scientist who dabbles in finance and economics. Um, so I'm more educated than most. I've even published in the field. And then I've also worked at um, two, actually two different banks in my career. Right. So you, you have a really interesting sort of view of the world. Um, one of our producers of the show in, in preparing our show notes wanted me to ask, what is a day like for you? I mean, we always when we have from high level agency administrators on, we always like to get a little insight into what that day like day is like for you. And I know it's different every day, <laughs> but what what a sort of a, a typical day like for the NOAA chief scientist? Yeah. Uh, so when I'm actually sitting in my office, we have a morning meeting where all of us get together and we talk about what we're working and we're working on. Um, and then I have usually a series of meetings um, with different parts of NOAA. So I can be briefed on different aspects of science or technology and the developments that they're having. And I'm asked to weigh in or give advice or even take that information with me to figure out what I'm doing on the policy side or the discussion side of how we need to implement that data. Um, and then I also typically meet with some stakeholders some people that use our climate or information or weather information. And they want to either talk about that and get some help expanding what they're doing, or they also want to give us feedback on what they're seeing and what they think um, the science priorities should be going forward. Um, so that's when I'm in the office. But then sometimes I'm also traveling. Like last week, I was in Southern California and I got to meet, I went to the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Yes. So you are, I mean, you, again, you're, you, have, you have your fingers all across the, the agency. For many listeners, particularly the Weather Geeks listeners, they may be familiar with the National Weather Service. So they may be familiar even with the satellite operations within NOAA, commonly known as NESDIS. But NOAA is a much broader organization than just weather or even climate for that matter. I mean, I know there's the dry side of NOAA and the wet side of NOAA. Can you give the listeners a sense of the broadness and breadth of NOAA? Because it really is beyond weather and climate. When, one of the ways that we describe it is it's from the bottom of the ocean to the weather that's happening off the sun. So we, we span all those different spaces and our observation systems span all those spaces and our predictive capabilities. They're in the ocean for, for the currents of the ocean, but also the fish in the ocean, the plankton in the ocean, the 
pH, the salinity, how that changes. But then we also have space weather um, and predictive capabilities of space weather. And we also are monitoring space debris. Um, so, it, so it's everything in between those bands is what we're um, working on. I don't think people uh, realize the breadth of the work that we are doing. Yeah, and you mentioned space weather, and I think for many people, when they hear that term, they may be thinking about a dust devil or tornado on Mars or something, but it's actually, you know, these sort of ionized particles and, you know, coronal mass ejections and things that come from the sun. And again, putting on your economics and your sort of NOAA climate science hat, I, I remember writing something in Forbes a few years ago talking about there's a massive a trillion or three trillion dollar potential storm out there because of these space weather uh, events that happen and knock out our power grids and communication networks and so forth. Uh, dive into from your perspective, uh, multidisciplinary perspective, how um, a significant space weather event could impact aspects of our economy yeah. and then why uh, why Noah's concerned about that. Yeah, so. So it's exactly the points that you mentioned. It can affect our satellites. It can affect our power systems, um, anything that runs on electricity. And so having advanced knowledge of when those storms are coming, knowing when they're going to come, having those forecasts allows us to plan for them so we can move um, assets out of the way so they're not affected by them or bring them down. But it also allows us, with all the data we've collected on these storms and predictive capabilities and variability of these storms and when they can occur and their likelihoods and risks, we can also use that to create contingency plans, plans around how to have resilience in the event that those storms happen, but also in advance of those storms, what to do so you can minimize those risks and then post the storms, what you do to recover really quickly. Um, and that's, that's you know, all the fundamental of NOAA and the forecasting that we efforts that we even do on normal weather, like with tornadoes or with hurricanes. It's having the knowledge end to end a couple days in advance, but also months, years in advance for planning to maintain operations and reduce the risk and exposure. Um, it's critical. And this data and information that we produce is really critical for being able to do that. And and again, I've I've kind of peeked inside the coffers of Noah over the years in my career. And one of the things that comes up from time to time is, do we know the cost of weather and climate events, or do we know the cost of a significant space weather event? And I guess my question really comes from this idea. Again, I remember back after uh, Hurricane Sandy and the destruction that was caused. All of a sudden, we wanted to buy the new computers and fast computers and things that we needed. Congress was all on board for giving us, that, and I say us meaning the community, of the, the things that we need. Uh, I've been very sort of vocal in, over the years in terms of being sort of proactive rather than reactive. And so my question for you is, how do you, as someone that has a science and an economics background, how do you frame the case for stakeholders and policymakers about the cost of a new satellite system or the cost of a new observation system or model uh, from that economic perspective? Yeah, so your question really gets at also like people's perception of risks, which is behavioral economics of how do, how do people perceive risks? And so we can have the quantification of what the risks are today. Um, but typically, if people haven't experienced a risk, they downplay what the what the actual risk is in terms of being realized. And then post an event, there's a heightened awareness of that risk. And so people want to do something. And so part of my job is making sure that we communicate what the risks are and what the knowledge are. And what it is that we need to do to lower those, but also doing that work on making those calculations of also the money that you save in the future post an event, if you actually do that um, 
put those investments in upfront. And that is a really important part of planning for those space weather storms, but also planning for climate change and climate risks and extremes is that often the cost of adapting now or making your the advanced planning for resiliency now is much smaller than the cost after a major event if you've done none of the planning. And so it's communicating what those differences in costs are over time and how you would gain benefits from being able to do those um, initial investments today. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with NOAA's chief scientist, Dr. Sarah Kapnick. And we're talking about uh, her role as the chief scientist, what, what NOAA's mission is, and uh, how she'll sort of uh, navigate her new space as uh, the third woman, actually, to uh, host us, this, have this position, which in itself I want to talk about a bit later. In, in recent weeks, we've heard quite a bit of discussion about climate, the climate crisis, climate change. I know that President Biden, as we're taping this yesterday, recently signed uh, a bill into law uh, that is one of the most aggressive uh, responses to the climate crisis. Uh, as NOAA's chief scientist, what would you say is NOAA's role in addressing or dealing with the climate crisis? So, Part of it is that we have been monitoring the climate and the Earth system. And so we have the historical data of knowledge of what the past is. And then we also have an understanding of what the future holds from our forecasts, from our seasonal predictions, our decadal predictions, but also our projections of future climate. And so we have this wealth of knowledge and data of what the past has looked like and what the future can potentially look like. And we can take all that information to know what the future is, how to plan for it, how to adapt to it but then also how society can respond. And particularly with this recent bill that was passed, a large portion of that is going towards coastal resilience and building coastal resilience in the United States. And that's along the coast that people traditionally think about, along the Pacific, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Atlantic, but that's even in the Great Lakes. There's work that can be done. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, NOAA is, I've, I've always considered NOAA one of the key players, information sources, uh, credible sources on not only climate observations, but also climate modeling as well. Uh, you know, as I, I think about your role, you mentioned as the chief scientist, you sort of set the sort of agenda and, and, and make sure that NOAA's science agenda uh, and, 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 and program is on par. It brings to mind the question, 
who sets the science agenda for no? And in other words, obviously, there's this is a, a ship that's been sort of cruising for a while. So you aren't coming in and saying, OK, this is all of a sudden what Noah is going to do. But talk to the listeners, because, again, I don't know that our Weather Geeks listeners may have a full understanding of who sets the priorities for what Noah is doing. Is it the Congress? Is it advisory committees? stakeholders, a bit of all of the above. Just tell us a little bit about the prioritization of, of research and science within the agency. I think it's a little bit of all of the above, which which is possibly for you a dissatisfying answer because you want in-depth on one. Um, but it, you know, NOAA has its long, long-term mission of being able to provide forecasts and predictions and being able to provide the observations and observation networks and maintaining them. And so there's this legacy work that we were doing that we have to continue. But then also through the new bills, there's new things that we need to deliver in terms of delivering more information on climate data, climate services, to be able to make those decisions, make those decision making. And so now is a really exciting time um, in terms of figuring out, okay, how are we going to do that? How are we going to make sure that we're engaging with the private sector? How are we going to make sure that we're engaging with local communities to be able to deliver the information that they need to be able to build resilience and adaptation? And so it's that translation of that data, that translation of that information is, is a really critical space for us right now to make sure that we deliver on that so that investments are made, so plans are made to build a more resilient climate, climate ready nation. Um, yeah, so we have a weather-ready nation that I know is a significant part of the National Weather Service's uh, narrative of the last several years. And big shout out to former National Weather Service Director Louis Uccellini, a good colleague and friend of mine. And, and, and good luck to Ken Graham, the new National Weather Service Director as well. I know there's been quite a bit of transition within the agency, including you coming on as chief scientist as well. You mentioned something that I want to sort of latch on to for a moment. Uh, I've been in this sort of world, you know, 25-ish years or so, and I've seen a dramatic increase in the interactions and influence of the private sector uh, in the weather, climber, weather climate and water enterprise. Uh, talk to us about your interactions and where you see the role of the private sector in NOAA's mission. Yeah, that was part of the reason that I was recruited back in is because I've had this private sector experience. Right now, we need to build our strategy of how do we engage the private sector. So across NOAA, we have different ways that we've traditionally engaged. We have our SBIR program, our Small Business Innovation Research Grants. Those are seed funding for startups in the space that relate to NOAA's mission. We have CRATAS, which allow us to make uh, joint research uh, goals with companies to be able to jointly develop research along uh, priorities for NOAA. We have, we've been signing MOUs to be able to have, uh, again, joint research projects, creating data, making sure that we're delivering on the data that the private sector needs. So right now, a lot of the discussions that we've been having are around ensuring that the data and the products and the services that we produce are usable to the private sector. Because ultimately, companies are, are now faced with needing to understand climate, needing to understand climate change, and integrating that into their risk practices, looking for new opportunities and building out their resiliency plans. And so they're looking for authoritative government information to be able to do, make those decisions. And so we are providing that information. We're ensuring that we're communicating it to them in ways that they can use it, but also making sure that we have the data and information that they need. How, how do we, and again, you, you, we're talking with Dr. Sarah Kapnick, NOAA chief scientist, and, and you know, you heard her mention recruited her back in because I believe she also had, had some 
previous time within NOAA as a deputy division leader and a research physical scientist as well. How do we routinely create scholars that are cross-disciplinary and not unicorns? And what I mean by that is I increasingly, with our students at the University of Georgia and elsewhere, I don't want them to just be thinking about uh, El Ninos and atmospheric rivers and sort of the physical sciences. I want them to be thinking about the economic and policy implications and how to communicate effectively. From your lens as someone that does this very well across all of those fronts, um, is there anything that we need to be doing as a broader community, as academia, as NOAA, to produce the next generation of stakeholders, scholars, and professionals uh, at this sort of multi-intersectional problem of climate? Absolutely. I, there's a generational shift also in the interest of students that students want to understand these challenging problems. Like the climate issues are a systems problem across many different scales. It covers business, policy, finance, science, and technology. And all of these issues require some, when you're working in this space, require some knowledge of the other groups to understand how you can be really effective. Like I saw this when I was leaving undergraduate almost 20 years ago, where I thought, I want to work at the intersection of climate and finance. And when I tried to find jobs like that, it was only reinsurance insurance. Um, and so I personally create, crafted my own set of expertise by trying to move back and forth between them, between different departments and also different types of jobs over time to build this expertise. And I think young people really want to figure out how to do that. And so I think academic institutions have a way that they can help make sure that people get the training in the different areas. But then also, as um, my advice to young people that are also listening, is to take those different opportunities to be able to develop different types of skills um, and things that you're really passionate about and you're really interested in. So there's a few people now that that I've met with that are younger that are now super interested in finance as well as in climate. And And there are others who are policy climate and others. And so I think that we're starting to develop the workforce, but we need everyone we can with all these interdisciplinary uh, viewpoints and skill sets to be able to deal with the issues that we face today. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Kapnick, NOAA's chief scientist. You know, one of the things I mentioned when I introduced you earlier is I, I believe you're the third uh, woman to hold the post of NOAA chief scientist. And you know, I've been in a similar situation as an African-American scientist. And whether we want to or not, sometimes we are considered mentors and role models and beacons of, of, of how others that may be coming behind us can achieve certain levels. So 
one, why, and I, this is not really specific to Noah because I'm frankly, it's, it's probably across many organizations, but why is it that you're the third woman to hold that position in the long history of an agency or I'm the second African-American to be president of the American Meteorological Society? So my point is not in, about a specific NOAA or organization, but it's more of a why are we still at the point where we're seeing first, seconds and thirds in 2022? Yeah. Don't you look forward to the day when we won't have to talk about which number that we are? Correct. That, that's correct. And um, we're still in low numbers. <laughs> yeah. It, um, you know, traditionally this field just hasn't had a lot of diversity of people getting PhDs. Um, and so it's been, and people also rising up through the ranks. Um, whereas now people getting PhDs in the field, there's like 40% women in our sciences. Um, but it's still, it hasn't made it up to the higher ranks. And so uh, an issue that I really care about in the NOAA workforce is ensuring that we bring people in so we recruit them, but also that we retain people and that we retain a diverse group of people. Um, and I think that as that happens and as we have a change in the mix of the workforce over time, then you will see more and more uh, diversity within our ranks at the highest levels. Um, and that is a really important thing that I care about a lot is making sure that we not just recruit the best people, we retain them and we create a really good environment from the lead from myself and the leadership down of we want to have a welcoming environment a welcoming environment to everyone because only if we can do that will we end up ha not having to count what number um the next woman chief scientist says yeah I, I, you know I, i'm a big nba basketball fan and you know there are several women now that are official officials or referees in the nba and you don't even notice it's not even a thing but i remember when when the first uh couple of uh, female referees uh, entered the league it was a you were always talking about it but we are now to a point where okay that's expected and hopefully we can get to that point in science and i know rick spinrad and some of your other colleagues there we've had rick on weather geeks recently and i know he's committed to that as well so it's encouraging to see I want to pivot back to your role as chief scientist now i mean you you you're just sort of in but you know noah and you know the landscape you i don't know what the political cycle is i don't know how long you'll be at noah but over the next five to 10 years, what, how do you foresee NOAA being different in five to 10 years? I expect there'll be more development around climate services, around not just delivering data, but make sure that we're doing that, like not delivery of just putting something on a website, but more actually engagement and making sure that that delivery takes place. Because from my experience in the private sector, this information is needed by every single company. It's needed by small companies, middle companies, major Fortune 500 companies and corporations. And so everyone needs this information and needs to start being able to use it. And they want the official data backed by the US government for making their decisions. And so we have a role to play in ensuring that people get access to that and information to, so they can do their planning. Um, and I think it's only going to accelerate as people see those major events and want to do something about that in their communities or in their businesses. And, and I know that NOAA has had some end runs at, or at least it's come up in previous NOAA administrations. I think even guy, I remember Scott Rader telling me it came up in the Con Conrad Lautenbacher years. I remember when I served on the NOAA SAB, uh, I think it was in the transition from Jane Lipchenko to Kathy Sullivan, there was discussion of climate services. My sense is during those times, people didn't really know what climate services meant or it got conflated with climate change. I think we've kind of moved to a different space, but could you, 
I, I think our listeners have an inherent understanding of what the National Weather Service is and provides. Could you give us a quick 101 distinguishing what you mean when you say climate yeah. service? Yeah, within that, like for an individual location, it's understanding what has been the past history of climate and the past history of extreme events. And then what is the expected future climate and future event um, values? And also, what is the uncertainty around that? What is the, the range of the climate or the range of those extremes? And then potentially also, what are case studies of what people are doing when they have that information to be able to make it actionable? That is where the value is created in that data is actually then putting it into action, into use. Um, and so having case studies, information, guidance on what one, one can do with that. And so that is the basic information work that we need to be able to do and put out there. And from that, communities will build on it. Academics will build on it private sector will build on it as they figure out what to do and create their own products from that. And so our job as creating the best science around these things is to making sure that we get it out there so it can be used. Yeah, that's a really great discussion because I, I want I want this audience to understand and get comfortable with that word or that set of words, climate services, because, you know, companies who make clothing attire or agricultural companies or uh, people that you may not even think about the u.s olympic committee they they want information climate services and climate information and i know that there are state climatologists regional climate centers um, and various other entities that NOAA has been a part of so climate services is inherently there but uh, i my sense from your discussion and is that we're going to see a a much more focused and concerted effort around climate services. Um, Sarah, what 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 keeps you up at night uh, in terms of your role as climate scientist or just as a climate scientist in general? I think what's always kept me up is, am I doing enough on climate and making sure that I'm communicating climate? And am I spending my time where I can be really effective? My goal is to make a positive impact um, in the climate sphere, and it has been for 20 years. Um, and so I constantly are reassessing and making sure that I am spending my time where my time is most needed and I can have the most value. Well, and we certainly hope that time includes value at Weather Geeks. And we thank you for joining us. Where, where can people find out more about you? Are there websites or social media that you want to put out there? Uh, you can find more. There's more information on the NOAA webpage or the leadership page. And uh, we may have new social media coming out later. I don't have that right now. Very good. Well, we'll, we'll keep an eye out. And as that comes out, we'll be sure to put it out there on our Weather Geeks pages. So be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And uh, we'll up to keep you up to date on any new forthcoming pages from NOAA that may involve Dr. Sarah Kaptik. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we are still soliciting Geek of the Week nominees, so go to our Twitter page and fill that form out if you want to nominate someone or you have someone in mind or even yourself. Uh, I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you again for listening to another interesting episode of the Weather Geeks podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.